We all do better when we all do better. That means everyone. All genders and colors just love one another. We'll have so much fun. The question that will immediately come on November 7th is, well, what did the resistance want? What did the blue wave want? And I know what the movement does not want to see is a lot of deals cut with Trump. Welcome to the Indivisible MN03 podcast. I'm here at the beautiful Studio Americana in Golden Valley. This is Lori Wolf, co-chair of Indivisible MN03 and podcast host. And I have with me Jenna Martin. Jenna is one of the co-founders of our Indivisible here in MN03 and the co-chair with me. Hi, Lori. And we're very excited today to be talking to Ezra Levin, who is one of the co-founders of the Indivisible Movement nationally. Uh, And he is calling in. I guess I didn't ask you, Ezra, are you in New York right now? I'm actually in Washington, D.C., in the the deep, deep of the swamp. Lucky you. You're right in the thick of it. Thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have a conversation with you. Um, I just wanted to start out by letting our listeners know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us how, how you got into politics in the first place and why you are here where you are? Yeah, sure. Happy to talk a little bit about it. You know, so Leah and I, uh, Leah Greenberg's my uh, spouse, and she's the co-executive director with me of Indivisible. We actually both uh, went to undergrad uh, just a little south from you all um, in at Carleton College. And so one of our um, early inspirations was, um, uh, of course, Paul Wellstone. Um, he was there before our time, but uh, mm-hmm. a hot topic of conversation when we were uh, undergrads. Um, my background um, is in actually domestic anti-poverty policy and advocacy. I started out right after Carleton working on homelessness issues in the Bay Area uh, and then went uh, over to D.C. to work for the congressman who used to represent me um, in Austin, Texas, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was there. I started the, the week that Lehman Brothers failed, uh, very <laughs> memorably, uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, and then was suddenly there covering um, social policy for the congressman uh, right when Obama took office. And we had this wonderful 111th Congress in 2009 where we were able to get actually a whole bunch of stuff done, which gave me really an unrealistic uh, set of expectations <laughs> for what Congress can do. Uh. Um, but I was also there, as was Leah, uh, for the rise of the Tea Party. Um, yes. So we were there when people in even blue districts, but red districts and purple districts, started showing up at congressional district offices and making calls and trying to force Congress not to do the things that President Obama had a mandate to do. And we saw the impact it had. We saw that it actually changed what was politically possible. Um, and that was really the... Um, the, the lessons we learned there fed directly into the writing of the Indivisible Guide. Uh, after the 2016 election, Lee and I have both been off Capitol Hill for several years. I've, I've been working on anti-poverty advocacy in D.C. She's been working on human trafficking policy. Um, and uh, after the election, we were searching for what we could do like everybody else. Um, it was uh, going through the stages of grief, really. You know, as dark as everything was in that moment in November 2016, and it was really dark, the silver lining was we were seeing people all over the country, friends and friends of friends and, uh, and others, starting to ask, okay, what, what do we have to do? Uh, we need to resist in some way. What should we do? 
And Lee and I thought, well, we, we have an idea of what works. Um, why don't we try to demystify Congress for this burgeoning anti-Trump resistance? Uh, and that's why we wrote The Indivisible Guide. Yeah, and thank you so much for writing that, by the way, because I was still sitting on my couch eating ice cream at that point in time. I, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't quite as ready to be an activist yet. And I know that Jenna was in a similar state of mind when she found The Indivisible Guide very early on. So, Jenna, do you want to talk about that and... Yeah, Ezra, thanks uh, for writing it, because it was a real silver lining for me. I was in that same uh, state of despair and shock and grief. And then when I I listened to a lot of podcasts in general, and I I came across a reference to this, what was then just the Google Doc. And uh, I right away saw just how your ideas were so powerful and action-oriented. And then uh, when I read more about my own district here where we live in CD3, it just made so much sense. So I I can't thank you enough. It was really inspiring and uh, a compelling read. Well, thank you. Sorry for all the typos. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, Jenna was one of those early readers who got to see the uh, the last refined version, I understand it. I didn't see it that early on. <laughs> well, I was just uh, remembering when we were actually putting it out. So Lee and I started writing it uh, the weekend that we were home for Thanksgiving, um, back home where I'm from in, in Austin. And we had been working on it for three or so weeks and it just been consuming our lives. Uh, it was our, our pet project. And we, we finally, uh, we were eating soup at the kitchen table one <laughs> evening in December. And I said, look, we just got to get it out. We've got to move on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tweeted it out um, and thought that was that. Hopefully it is useful. So you just tweeted <laughs> it out and thought people would read it and it would be out there. And you didn't expect a whole movement that you would end up leading. Uh, right. The, the intention was never for 5,000 individuals. <laughs> visible groups to form all across the country in every congressional mm. district. That, you know, our, our, our hope was that, you know, maybe six months in the future, somebody would reach out to us and say, hey, I just went to a congressional town hall and used your guide and really let my member of Congress know what's what. Um, and we would have counted that as success. Um, and actually, wow. the guide started crashing within a couple of hours of us, of me tweeting it out. Um, <laughs> because so many people were trying to access it. That was our experience here, too. You know, we I had a meeting January 11th. 2017. And, yeah. And um, I, I booked uh, just the coffee shop meeting room that holds 12 people. And pretty soon I was already seeing, you know, 30 people were interested in a Facebook group. So we had to move rooms, you know, so we had about 50 people packed into our first meeting. And that was even before anyone had really heard of Indivisible. So I think, I mean, you really uh, hit the nail on the head. For me, when I read the guide, what I always remember this phrase is that you talked about your experiences uh, working during the Tea Party, and you said you saw how they brought down uh, a really popular president like Barack Obama. And I mean, it was just obvious that, I mean, Trump is not a popular president. No, that's right. I mean, the basic idea behind the guide was a pretty simple understanding of how representative democracy works in America, which is the president does not control the agenda, cannot unilaterally implement most of what he or she wants to do. The president relies on Congress. And the great thing about Congress, and there are very few great things because they have an approval rating on par with toenail fungus, but the great <laughs> thing is that they have to, they, the Congress, uh, members of Congress have to get reelected. So they, uh, we know from working on Capitol Hill that they wake up every morning, even the good ones wake up every morning thinking, how can I get reelected? And that gives people power. Um, that's why the work of Indivisible and other resistance groups on the ground has had an impact. That's, that's how the power is applied. 
So I want to circle back to something you said before, and and Jenna mentioned it too, is that you had this experience working in um, a legislative office during the rise of the Tea Party and that you you and Leah were talking about sort of those Tea Party tactics. How do you see the Indivisible Guide and thus the Indivisible Movement that came out of it as both similar to and different from what the Tea Party movement did uh, with Barack Obama's agenda? I mean, I think clearly... There are some basic differences with the Tea Party. Uh, we really admire is a strong word, but we, we think that they were really smart on uh, tactics and strategy, mm-hmm. that on defense, uh, on, on focusing on your own elected officials because they're the ones that represent you, on having it largely be grassroots-driven. Um, I think that was really smart. Obviously, we disagreed with basically every single um, <laughs> policy that, they supported. We reject their racism. We reject their violent tactics. Leah had some uh, violent episodes with Tea Party protests mm. at, um, at events for her member of Congress. Mm. Uh, I witnessed uh, Tea Partiers calling in and screaming uh, curse words at you know interns who are working in our office, mm. um, coming up and uh, hanging our uh, uh, my boss, the member of Congress, in effigy at events. Things like that that we just. Um, uh, one, we, we thought they were bad things to do. You shouldn't, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't spit on people. You shouldn't um, uh, engage in violence. But we also mm-hmm. thought they were counterproductive. Mm. Um, and so we uh, really emphasized the need to be nonviolent and respectful, but assertive of uh, your rights and your authority as a constituent. Um, so the other big difference between us and the Tea Party, I think there was a, a very... Um, similar ways that these groups began. I think uh, folks on the progressive side of the aisle, I often hear try to dismiss the Tea Party as, oh, that's purely a, um, uh, a conservative billionaire-funded astroturf campaign. And while it did start to become taken over by those forces, early on in 2009 and 2010, it really was this grassroots effort. It, were the, it, it was these conservatives who were coming up and not controlled by, um, uh, by some outside force. They were angry at the president for uh, reasons that I totally disagreed with, but they were coming together to um, exercise their rights as constituents. Um, that is not how the movement remained. Um, pretty soon, um, big money came in and tried to direct that energy towards its own goals um, and kind of hijacked the movement. Uh, one thing that we at Indivisible, the organization, are trying to do is have as our North Star that we work for the leaders of this movement that mm. we do not lead this, um, that it depends on the leadership of the groups on the ground, and it's incumbent on us to allow that creativity and local power to develop. Um, because without that, all we are is uh, just an, another office full of people in the swamp, um, and <laughs> yeah. that's never going to um, have the impact that we wanted to have. Uh, we actually have a set of organ- – we, we have shared office space here in, in D.C., um, and we have a set of organizational principles on our wall. Um, there are 10 of them. And literally the first one is we work for the leaders of this movement. Uh, we want that front and center. So you're very aware of what happened to the Tea Party and are, it sounds like even guarding against that already because that's a potential danger you could fall into if you're not aware. That, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. It could become corrupted. And there, I mean, because it, indivisible is a power source. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's a power source like this, you're going to find other um, other movers and shakers trying to somehow control it. And to the extent indivisible national mm-hmm. the organization can be a force against that, can be guarding the movement from that kind of 
infiltration and hijacking, I think that's a good thing. On a lighter note, one of the things that um, I think about too is there is this uh, researcher at Harvard, Theda Scotchball, who's uh, a longtime studier of social movements and uh, civic institutions in the U.S., and she wrote one of the definitive books on the Tea Party. It's actually one of the things that I read when we were preparing to write the guide. And she is now going out and studying the indivisible groups in the same areas. Mm. And one of the things she finds is, in fact, that the number of indivisible groups spread around the country is actually significantly larger um, than the number of Tea Party groups, even at its height. Hmm. Um, the Tea Party had roughly 1,500 or so groups uh, at its height in 2009 and 2010 uh, and diminished pretty quickly after. Um, and indivisible has had over 5,000 groups registered. Um, certainly several thousand that remain very active. It's interesting, you know, because I I think a lot about the media and how um, different political factions are portrayed. When we have had sort of limited coverage of our group, they always go back to the Indivisible Guide, uh, your Indivisible website. So we get described as, you know, the local group, part of a national network, we are affiliated, but it's. Uh, I, I think of ourselves like you were saying too, an independent local grassroots. I would never. The first word to describe us would not be part of a national network. So, it seems like the media was happier to talk about the Tea Party than they are about our activism. That is really interesting. We, indivisible um, nationwide, both national and local groups, got around two billion dollars in earned media uh, in the last uh, mm. twenty months or so. Um, and that's as a result of getting coverage, yes, in the in the national press, but a lot in local press, which we really uh, encourage. We think local press oh, is yeah. incredibly important for achieving our goals. And we um, do, too. We, and we do get a lot of coverage. I guess I just want more. <laughs> and I think for really healthy reasons. It's not just about seeing your name in the press. I think some people, when they when they think about it, though, don't understand that Earn Media is a tool. It is a, it is a power tool to use to pressure your elected officials and to grow your own movement. Um, and I think it's incredibly important for any social movement to continually uh, get media coverage. That's, what's allow, that's, that's what allows us both to grow and to apply that power. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And one thing that I think is really interesting in our district here is we have a Republican incumbent. Um, Eric Paulson is our member of Congress. And uh, we have been putting pressure on him since we started, really, in, in January of 2017. And he has managed to create his own media narrative. And he has this whole persona created for himself of I'm a moderate and, you know, I'm kind of the boy next door, just like you, which is totally at odds with how he actually votes, which is 90, almost 98 percent along party lines with President Trump and and Paul Ryan. And so I think Jenna's impulse and, and our group's impulse is we really feel like we need to counter that narrative with our own story about being a constituent in this district and what it feels like. And and there is this reluctance, I think, of our local media to some extent to really provide that other side of the story. It, it's it's easier for the incumbent in, in Congress to sort of get that coverage and, and be interviewed on TV than, than we've had. We've had to struggle to get that earned media. Yeah. And um, there's a great book on uh, that, that I really recommend to a lot of folks, this book called Twitter and Tear Gas by Zeynep Tefekci. Huh. Um, she's a Turkish scholar of uh, social movements, and the book is about social movements in the age of social media. Um, and one of the main points she makes is that um, 
uh, media is oxygen for a social movement. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the challenges for a social movement, though, is how do you continually get that media? And you can't do it by doing the same old, same old thing mm-hmm. because then it's not news anymore. Right. Um, the Women's March, which I love, did uh, a phenomenal march the first time and an even bigger march the second time um, by, by some estimates in some places. And yet the media coverage of the, of the second Women's March was um, – uh, it was paltry by mm-hmm. comparison. Yep. Um, we've got to keep on innovating. And what she talks about is tactical innovation. They need to figure out ways to do new things that uh, are interesting, that bring in new people and attract new media attention. And the the fact that Indivisible Nationwide has had $2 billion of earned media is evidence of that creativity on the ground. And we really try to encourage it. So like when I see uh, the individual groups in Colorado have a cardboard Corey uh, representing uh, Corey Gardner, who's not showing up at town halls, but cardboard Corey does. Um, and that gets a lot of press coverage. Or when I see individuals in Michigan in Dave Trott's district, a Republican voting for Trump care, holding a town hall um, without Dave Trott, because he won't show up, but having a live chicken on stage <laughs> representing Dave Trott. That, this kind of, uh, uh, frankly, using humor uh, to really uh, a great effect um, and using innovative visuals in order to get media's attention, mm. using events in order to show that representatives who are not representing their constituents look weak and disconnected. Um, this kind of conflict uh, is a really effective way to get media, but it doesn't happen automatically. It's another reason why we think it's so important that Indivisible isn't a top-down organization. In order to have that kind of creativity, you've got to allow the locals to, to figure that out themselves. But I, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I feel your pain. You've got to keep <laughs> on innovating and keep on being creative, and, it, and it's tough. That was one of actually the questions that I, I had later on that I wanted to talk about, though, is this, how do you balance the the national Indivisible and, and the leadership that you provide and the sort of guidance along with the leadership and autonomy of the local-level groups? Like, how do you, how does that work out for you and 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 how how do you manage to to keep that excitement and enthusiasm at the local level and keep that innovation going but still provide the sort of guidance of a, a national umbrella that you have yeah you're hitting on i think the fundamental question of how does a how does a movement and a movement organization work um, because it's a it's a specific structure and it is uh, the is the central question for our operations, I think, here uh, at Indivisible National. Um, and it's a balance, and it's always a balance, and I'm not going to say we've always gotten it right. I think when we are doing our best, what we are doing is not um, getting well out ahead of the groups on the ground, but accurately taking in information from them, using the expertise that we have about how uh, elections work or how Congress works or how a state legislature works, and then passing that information down to demystify the various systems or provide the tools necessary to engage so that the groups can do it. When we are doing our best, we are empowering groups. We're not directing them. Um, and uh, so over the course of the last 20 months, that's, that's taken different forms. On the, on the congressional advocacy side, for instance, um, when we were fighting Trump care, we had 10 states with Republican senators who we thought were good targets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we would do at the national level, we identified those 10 states, and then we were turning out on a daily uh, basis almost uh, state-specific scripts. 
So if you were a mm-hmm. West Virginia indivisible, you would have a script for calling uh, your senator that was specifically about opioids because she cares about opioids. If you were in a Maine, you were having a script specifically about Medicaid because Collins cared about Medicaid. And we were trying to provide information that was immediately useful to the groups on the ground. Um, and we've done that throughout the advocacy fights, trying to say, Here's the issue. Here's where you have leverage. Obviously, it's up to you if you want to use it right now, but this is what's up in Congress, and we think you should be fighting on this. But when the rubber hits the road, it's up to the groups to decide whether, you know, they might not want to fight on Trump's today. Maybe they want to talk about the Paris Climate Accord. And frankly, that's great. That's up to them. Um, they should be making those choices. Uh, the, on the election side, one thing that's um, different about the election world is that it's not just about um, people power. It's also about the tools they have. Uh, if you just go and knock on every door in your neighborhood, you're going to end up on knocking on uh, one, an inefficient number of doors mm-hmm. and two doors that might generate um, support for the other side. You might generate support for Eric Paulson. So it's very important when you're engaging in elections to have the appropriate canvassing and phone making and texting tools connected to the voter file. So we actually um, uh, purchased the voter file nationwide for literally every indivisible group. So folks can now do targeting to knock on doors and make calls for their members of Congress. And it's just not something you would be able to do unless you had a whole bunch of uh, money at the local level to to purchase it yourself. Um, So we're we're always trying to figure out ways to, to be empowering the groups on the ground and developing structures that really tap into that local knowledge and authority. Um, one thing I read, you are, are doing a similar thing now with the Supreme Court nomination for Brett Kavanaugh. I saw that you have um, scripts for that and targeted um, senators to call. And I, I recently saw a, a note from some indivisibles in Maine who who were in the, the Susan uh, Collins's office in Bangor, I believe it was, and saw interns while they were there taking phone calls and making no notes, logging nothing simply saying, thank you for the call, I'll pass it along to the senator, and hanging up. And I, our members feel, we haven't witnessed it, I don't think, but we feel like that's exactly what happens when we call Eric Paulson's office. We, we get told, we'll pass it along to the congressman, and they hang up, and nothing ever gets actually recorded or passed along to the congressman. So what are your suggestions Wait, how do we how do we deal with that if we're following the scripts and we're, we're, we're attempting to put this pressure on, but the staff are an obstacle? That line that you're saying, we'll pass this on to the <laughs> congressman or we'll pass this on to my boss, that is a line that literally every intern on Capitol Hill is taught to say. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so it is not surprised me. Now, good interns will record um, the information so that they can send you a piece of propaganda afterwards <laughs> right. um, saying why, why the member voted a certain way. Um, and but, we don't even and, get and propaganda. Actually, think, yeah, no, and, and, and I don't, I wouldn't dismiss that. I actually think you should want that. You should want that because that means they've actually recorded your, um, your call or your, your visit. Right. So I would recommend, I would highly recommend when you're calling a member of Congress's office to tell them your name, tell mm-hmm. them your address so that they can verify your constituent right. and explicitly request a response on why you're calling. And then keep track of it. If your members or if so, if you make a hundred calls to Paul uh, to Paulson's office, um, and everybody does that, and nobody gets a response, that's a news item. Then you can write up a letter to the editor and say we had a hundred people call in on this specific issue. We gave we verified we were constituents. 
We gave them our address. We requested a response, and he is not even talking to his constituents. Mm -hmm. um, I think you. Uh, this is a game that every member of Congress is going to play, which is they. Uh, you are going to pressure them in some way that they don't like, and you might get some press coverage initially, uh, or they might bend a little bit initially. But then they will they will develop their own tactics to respond to it, and then you've got to innovate your tactics to ensure that that pressure continues to work. Um, so I, I would just encourage you all if they are um, if they are totally ignoring you and not not responding, <laughs> mm -hmm. figure out ways to put pressure on them so they have to respond. Yeah, the actual tracking it and saying I want a response, I expect a response. That's a a good suggestion that we've done inconsistently. I think we could. Yeah, we could do that more. His his office is highly demotivating for people <laughs> because you call in and they um, if you say. You express what you want, and then you say, you know, if you ask a question, what is the congressman's position on a topic, uh, they have no information to give. And so we've had several members of our group who routinely call other congressional offices just to find out information about bills, you know, and the level of interaction they get is really remarkable compared to ours. Frankly, at this point, for everybody listening um, to this podcast right now, and I know we're going to get to this um, later in the conversation. Uh, you all have been doing so much work to pressure Eric Paulson, and he has spent the last 21 months not representing you. And the answer right now in this moment now is to change who represents you. Right. Uh, and there's yep. a lot of good work over the next 50 or so days that you can do to ensure that happens. And I think you've got a really good candidate, indeed, Phillips, who's going to make that happen if we put into work to make it happen. We, as a group, did endorse Dean Phillips um, at the local level, and we have signed up for the Indivisible Van. So I'm hoping our the people listening will go to our um, website, which is indivisiblemn03.org, or send an email to resist at indivisiblemn03.org and um, sign up for some phone banking or some door knocking, because um, that's really, I think, where our group is at, is we've spent almost, you know, a year, a little over a year and a half trying to pressure Eric Paulson into actually representing us, and we've been almost entirely, ign completely ignored um, by his office and, and, and by the congressman himself. So now it's, we're at the point where, like you said, we just, we have to change our representation, because it's pretty clear we're not going to get Eric Paulson to listen to us at this point. So, you know, that is where we're moving. Um, I think it's good to, I think our actions as a group have really proved to our members that there's a huge gap between what Eric Paulson says and what he does. And that, that has been a painful process to learn, but, uh, <laughs> but I think we've learned it and demonstrated it to others. I think that is 100% true, and I think it's an underappreciated part of the indivisible movement. So the, the earned media that you all were getting when you were fighting on uh, taxes or on Trump care or on any of the nominations, it was about those fights because those fights were important. But mm -hmm. it was also about letting everybody in your community know that Eric Paulson isn't who he says he is. He right. claims to be standing up, and they remember that. That affects his image, and this is why – I think some people think of elections and advocacy as being just totally separate efforts in their own silos, but they're not. They're opposite sides of the same coin. The work that you were doing to fight Trump care was elections work. You were defining the candidate, and now you get to defeat that candidate as a result of that work last year. Um, speaking of sort of where we were a year, year and a half ago, and where we are now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, since you are in D.C., you mentioned you're in the heart of the swamp, I believe was your word for it. Um, what do you think the political climate 
was like for, you know, in your experience right after the election and in the early days of indivisible forming and how it is now? Have you have you noticed any similarities or differences? Has anything shifted in your view? Oh, my gosh. So much has shifted. Uh, you know, the reason why we wrote the guide, I, I remember vividly the week that um, Leah and I said, well, we've, we've got to do something. And it was a week where simultaneously a, I believe, future Trump appointee or staffer uh, was speaking positively about the Japanese internment camps as a as a historical example. Um, and the same week, the same week, though, Democratic leaders were talking about how, well, we lost the election, so we've got to cut some deals. Maybe we can work together on infrastructure. Uh, so looking forward into the next year, there was a possible world in which we built both roads and internment camps. Right. And that would be the deal that was struck. And we were shocked. We, we were aghast at the lack of leadership, that the pessimism of the existing Democratic leaders mm-hmm. who were openly saying, along with, frankly, many other parts of the progressive community, that the Affordable Care Act was dead, possibly as soon as the you know, first day of the administration, that they had the House, they had the Senate, they had the presidency, and they were going to do a whole bunch of damage very quickly. That was common knowledge. That was conventional wisdom here in D.C. Uh, and one of the reasons we wrote the guide was explicitly um, to support the idea that we can say no, that it is possible to stand between the American public and the, and the harm that this administration and Congress wants to do, that we won't mm-hmm. win everything, but we can win some things if, if we stand indivisible together against every um, onslaught. Um, and so even back, I remember early last year as indivisible starting growing, and you know there are now groups in every congressional district, um, from deepest red to deepest blue, purple districts, I was seeing the energy out there, and I would tell people, I think we can retake the House. I think mm-hmm. we can put an end to this. And people were shocked. People <laughs> did not want to believe that. They, 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 the, the, the conventional wisdom in D.C. was, well, clearly the gerrymandering is so bad, and they've got such a big um, lead already that it's not going to be possible to do. Um, it would be interesting to go and look at um, uh, polling of um, D.C. elites back then uh, to see what they thought the chances were of retaking it. But uh, the bottom line is nobody really thought it was doable. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw the energy that was building around the country, and we thought this is absolutely doable. This is something different. Um, I think the same thing we're, uh, uh, we're seeing actually right now with the Senate. I'm not saying that we're guaranteed to take the Senate, but there's a real shot. Um, there are 10 Democrats in Trump one state. Uh, up for re-election, which is tough, but there are also four pickup opportunities, mm-hmm. and all we need is two. Um, mm-hmm. And we're seeing surprise races in places like Tennessee and Texas showing us that there is a path forward that's possible. So I, I would say right now in D.C., we're just in a categorically different place than where we were in November. I think people um, have been responding to the pressure and adjusting their political positions over the course of the last 20 months in response, and, and folks are a lot more optimistic for November. The, the conventional wisdom now in, uh, in D.C. is that the House is absolutely gettable. Um, I uh, personally think we should continue to think we're going to lose right up until oh, we yeah. Yeah, take yeah. nothing for granted. <laughs> right. Um, uh, after 2016, I will never think we're going to win again. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I think that's wise to do. That's, what we're, that's the tact we're taking here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that you feel like sort of the 
positivity has has shifted. You know, people were very pessimistic early on, and now uh, people are start in Washington are starting to think, well, maybe we Democrats can retake the House. Because when we first started here in Indivisible in in Eric Paulson's district, I remember people telling me, "Why are you wasting your time? It's, yes, that that is a safe seat. Like Paulson has skated." To re-election every year, he beat a very popular state-level politician in, in in 2016. And you know, why are you wasting your time with this? And and we just felt so strongly that people needed to be educated about yes, you know, his voting record and how he's not a moderate. And so we really started out with hammering that. And I think you're right that we have sort of chipped away at that. And now this new, um, were you following the New York Times or are you following the New York Times live polling that they're doing with Siena College? It's sort of fascinating to watch these little red and blue dots come on the screen. <laughs> the nine point advantage that Dean Phillips has right. over, over Paulson. Yes. I mean, and look, that is, you, you should be cheering that. That is a result mm-hmm. of your work. That is a direct result of your work. That does not just happen. Um, I think your analysis is spot on. Um, and I would say it's been replicated all over the country. Like I said, there are indivisible groups now in literally every single congressional district that have been doing things similar to what you are doing, uh, focusing on their members of Congress, um, pressuring them, getting earned media that demonstrates that they're not actually representing them, that they're voting with Trump 90, 95, 98% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, uh, what we've seen in the elections that we've had are a lot of surprises over the last 20 months. We've seen six, nine, 12-point swings against Trump-supporting members of Congress or Trump-supporting um, local elected officials. We need a three-point swing against Republicans in order to retake the House of Representatives. Uh, Democrats just picked up a 12-point-leaning Republican district in Pennsylvania. The signs we are seeing are quite good. None of this is guaranteed, mm-hmm. but the reason why we're seeing all these swings is because not because people are doing great get-out-the-vote efforts. Get-out-the-vote is really important, and we're all going to do that. But the reason why the public is turning against these candidates is because for a year and a half, indivisible groups and others have been making clear that these folks don't represent the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it's just great. Uh, it's great to see uh, both that happen, but also the rest of the uh, traditional political establishment be like, oh, my gosh, look at that. What's happening? Um, and uh, be totally caught off guard by it. I think... Um, Uh, we're going to see a lot more good surprises in November as a result of this work. One of the things that is nice about Indivisible is that it's really a social group, too. You know, I have all of my uh, friends now pretty much are (laughs) from Indivisible. So I think that's what makes our group strong is the kind of uh, kind personal connections that we've made. 100%. One hundred percent. So the the researcher scholar that I mentioned before, the Scotch Bowl, mm-hmm. where she's been studying the group, she finds that often the they exactly what you just said that the groups often are built on social networks. Often at the core is a, a friendship of women, uh, often a couple of women who met forming the indivisible group itself. Um, and uh, when I travel around the country, meeting with groups in in Florida or Pennsylvania or upstate New York or um, West Virginia. Uh, I find the exact same thing repeated again and again. The first thing that comes out is community. That mm-hmm. after the election, um, I think, I, and certainly Leah and I were doing this, we just reached out to friends. We, we brought them to our living room just to discuss what on earth we do. And we didn't have any brilliant ideas there. We didn't come up with Indivisible there. Um, but it turned out that the answer was what was going on in that living room was going on in living rooms all across the country. Um, mm-hmm. And from that, uh, original gathering and building of community has uh, become this 
great source of power that's changed what's politically possible nationally. Yeah, I would agree with what Jenna said, too, that our, our social connections has been really fundamental to the success of our group. And I'm a psychology professor in, in my real life, right, my actual job, because um, this is all volunteer work that Jenna and I do leading Indivisible. And I, I find an element of group therapy going on at our, our membership meetings and our, we're outside protesting, you know, the ACA repeal vote at Eric Paulson's office. And, you know, we're bonding and we're supporting each other and sharing our stories. And, and people are talking about their pre-existing conditions. And there is there is sort of a a connection and a sense of community that has formed within our group that I think has been really helpful to many of us in getting through what I have found to be a really difficult uh, year and a half, two years. We'll see how much longer we have to. I I don't see Indivisible going anywhere, but I'm hoping maybe the political climate will change somewhat noticeably after the midterm elections. And and, and it makes sense. one, One of the reasons why we recommended in the guide that people form groups is because we knew if this was just individual action, um, individual enthusiasm wanes naturally. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to keep things going up. If this is just grinding work that you have to do, if it's going to the gym, uh, you're less likely to sustain it. Oh, seriously, um, it's just not going to happen. And so, <laughs> yeah, it, but but if if you have a gym buddy, then you're right. much more yeah. likely to go. And, and then so if, we have yeah. all these. You can hang up our yeah. propaganda materials in the gym bathroom, too, which is what yeah. I do. So. <laughs> that's right. But, but I, I think you're right that that's, that's been key, that this is not just uh, work that people are doing. It's become a community, and that allows it to be like a, an enjoyable part of your life um, is being civically engaged. Yes, and one other thing that I've noticed, talk, talk about that part of community now, is that I'm much more likely to talk to my neighbors, talk to my friends about politics than I was before. And part of that is because, you know, we, we hear each other's stories of like, oh, I talked to him. I was walking my dog and I had a an Indivisible shirt on or I had a Dean Phillips button on and, and they stopped me and said, oh, my gosh, you're part of Indivisible. Right? And so it starts these conversations that would have never happened um, before the Indivisible Guide came out and before we formed this, this movement. So that's been really uh, it's been exciting for me. And I'm much more willing now to start those somewhat scary conversations for people. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm part of Indivisible. Let me tell you about what we do. That is great to hear. I was just in upstate New York, which you, you, you think um, you, New York, it's got to be really blue, right? Oh, not but upstate. Is, uh, and it, not upstate. Not I went upstate. to Syracuse a, University, so I, I... I was knocking on doors in Syracuse, and uh, I was out in Clinton, New York, with Indivisible groups there. It's a district that went Republican by 15 points. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, uh, Trump by 15 points. Trump yeah, by 15, yeah. let alone Republican. Uh, I was talking with about 40 Indivisible group members from various groups there, and one from even an hour outside of Clinton, um, so a very rural and red area, said one of the really radical acts that they've engaged in is just talking about politics, mm-hmm. talking about progressive values in their community. And people, you know, when they're protesting the Trump care vote or, or showing up at uh, Representative Tinney's office, a, a, a very hardcore Trump supporter, people in the community literally stop and ask, what, what, what are you doing? What is this? They've just never seen anything like <laughs> right. this. Like, why? But wait, we're obviously we're all Republican. Obviously, we're all conservative, right? Mm-hmm. And just the act of having those conversations um, is is somewhat radical in those communities. But that that's a first step. Many of the communities that that this movement is taking off have not really had strong progressive infrastructure. It's just accepted that uh, you have conserv- rep- uh, conservative representation or Republicans in office because they've been there forever. So I'm 
really given a lot of hope when I go and meet with these groups, especially in rural and red areas, mm-hmm. um, because they're building something new. And this is something that can actually change the system in ways that the same old, same old um, focus on, you know, purple districts or, or light blue districts just wouldn't do. Yeah, and it is exciting. And, and I know that we're excited for the midterm elections. Um, but we've been getting questions. I'm curious to see what you think is people have been asking us, so then what happens on November 7th? And of course, the answer may in part depend on what, you know, way things swing on the election. But let's say best case scenario is, you know, we do flip a lot of seats and and have success in taking back the House and or the Senate. What's next for Indivisible? Like, is that your goal? Are you done then? Like, you, that's what people keep asking us. Well, so, I mean, at the heart of Indivisible, even beyond the congressional advocacy, the, the, the basic radical idea of Indivisible is that in a representative democracy, your representatives ought to represent you. <laughs> and that doesn't depend on, I know, it's crazy, mm-hmm. um, uh, crazy idea, but that doesn't depend on who has control of the House of Representatives. It doesn't depend on who is, in fact, president. It's the basic functioning of democracy depends on an engaged and informed electorate. Especially in 2019, we do not view the fight as being over. So if we take the House of Representatives, the question that will immediately come on November 7th is, well, what did the resistance want? What did the blue wave want? Uh, mm-hmm. We will not have taken the House without the power of Indivisible and the resistance in the blue wave. And so we should have some say in setting what the agenda is. And that's not going to be set by me sitting in a room in D.C. It should be set by the movement. So mm-hmm. the question is, what, what does the movement want um, to see? And I know what the movement does not want to see is a lot of deals cut with Trump um, to build a wall so mm-hmm. that we can show that we can um, – be the reasonable folks governing once we take power. Now, there are some folks in D.C. who want to do that. Hmm. And it's been clear to me over the course of the last 20 months that, um, you know, even if your elected official is relatively friendly, even if they're a Democrat, um, it's not a switch that gets flipped, that Mm -hmm. suddenly they start listening to you and doing everything. You've (laughs) got to continue applying that pressure. Um, We saw this with Chuck Schumer, uh, the Senate Minority Leader, during the health care fight. I remember vividly, uh, this is the last... Father's Day, I was uh, on the phone outside Leah's parents' house talking to his staff um, because we desperately wanted the Democrats to withhold consent. Um, this is this kind of tactical maneuver in order to tell delay passage, uh, delay movement of a bill. And we wanted them to do it on Trump care so that we could delay it into July 4th recess, which would give us a week to apply more pressure to mm-hmm. uh, Republicans. And they weren't ready to do it. They said, look, we understand. We're just we think that's just too far um, we're just going to keep on um, trying to argue in the press about this. Um, and I said, OK, that's fine. But just so you know, uh, indivisible groups in every single uh, district office that Senator Schumer has are going to be holding sit-ins on Thursday. Um, <laughs> and they're going to be asking you to withhold consent and doesn't need to be contentious. Just want to give you a heads up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then literally the next day, Chuck Schumer's office announced they were withholding consent. That, mm. that got us to July 4th recess, which allowed Susan Collins to be confronted at a July 4th parade mm-hmm. uh, in Maine, allowed uh, Jerry Moran to be confronted in Taco, Kansas by indivisible groups. Um, it, it allowed us to delay it long enough to put pressure on it and ultimately kill it. Um, we have seen this repeatedly, that you have to apply pressure even to uh, your friendly elected Democratic senators to get them to fight as hard as they need to. So in January 2019, I think we're going to have to apply the same pressure. 
uh, to ensure that we actually have Democrats that are uh, fully resisting the Trump agenda and putting forward an alternative vision, uh, a real contrast in what Trump is putting out. When I talk to indivisible groups on the ground, there are definitely there are a ton of issues folks care about. They care about immigration, they care about healthcare, and they care about taxes and the environment. One thing that, and I'm curious to, we're doing surveys of the groups now, and we're we're, we're talking to groups now. One thing that I see come out regularly that um, undergirds all of that is this basic concern for the state of democratic institutions, mm-hmm. um, and this ranges from. Uh, you know, campaign finance reform to voting rights to gerrymandering to uh, ethics and um, uh, oversight in government to election security. But the basic idea that our and, and I think it's right that a healthy Democratic body would have rejected Trump the same way that a healthy body yes, rejected yes, the virus. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. and it did not. I don't know what and I'm and it's not up for me to decide what what the agenda next year ought to be. But it seems clear to me, talking to individual groups around the country, that before we can have any of the nice things we want to have, we've got to ensure that our democratic institutions are representative of the people. And they're just not right now. Yeah, I think that's a great focus for districts like ours, too. Mm-hmm. One of our early podcast guests was Brian Kloss, who was apparently a classmate of yours in the, at um, Carleton yeah. College. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so yeah. He, he wrote a book about Trump's authoritarianism and um, came on and talked exactly about this, about how we have to guard against this creeping authoritarianism and all these attacks on our democratic institutions, like the free press, like the judiciary. Talk about the Supreme Court nomination right now. Um, So, and that has resonated really, I I think, with voters in our district, as people are concerned about that basic principles, the foundations of our democracy being eroded. So we have to build that back up. And and that's going to take time. That's not just going to happen on November 7th after the election. I think it's a great issue also because it it actually doesn't need to be partisan. And indivisible Mm -hmm. is not an arm of the Democratic Party. We think it's incredibly important for it to be independent and progressive outside of the party structure. I don't think there's any way reason a Republican or an independent ought to oppose making it easier to vote or making sure our elections are secure. Um, or ensuring that you actually have fair representation and it's, uh, you, you don't live in a gerrymandered district, so your vote actually matters. Those aren't dem- capital D Democratic values. Mm-hmm. Those are just American lowercase d Democratic values. Right. Um, and I think it's uh, I do think it's really strong. A, one of the um, things that we uh, do for our endorsement process is we actually we don't endorse candidates who take corporate PAC dollars. Um, it's uh, a line that we draw. And what I've seen traveling in places like East and Middle Tennessee or rural Texas um, is that that basic message that, you know, we're trying to improve the system as a whole resonates everywhere. Uh, It doesn't resonate just in blue places. Um, I think figuring out the ways that we can communicate that uh, what we're fighting for is a democracy that works is is going to be very powerful. And it's in stark, stark contrast with the Trump administration and everything it's doing to undermine the fundamentals of democracy. The most important question I have for you before we wrap up is I saw you went to Carleton College, which is obviously in Minnesota, and then you went on to get your master's degree at Princeton, which is in New Jersey. So I'm from Minnesota. My husband's from New Jersey. Where did you enjoy living more? (laughs) (laughs) It might be a trap. The question might be a trap. I'll admit that. So the interesting thing is, like, I feel like I was like what I experienced in in Carleton was Northfield more than anything else. True. And what I yeah. experienced in uh, with the the town of Cal's College is in contentment, of course. Um, <laughs> and, I like that. And 
then in, in New Jersey, really all I experienced was the university. That's where I was all the time. And uh, Princeton God, is not love... representative of the larger state of New Jersey. Princeton's its own that, that, space. That is exactly right. <laughs> oh, gosh. It, now, if, if they get me on a New Jersey podcast, they're really going to throw this in my face. They I are. I love my time in Northfield. <laughs> oh. Northfield is so great uh, and such a great and welcoming environment. I mean, I, I really like my time uh, in at Princeton, but um, I, I think I formed a lot of my earliest political um, beliefs and uh, uh, started actually getting involved in uh, trying to change things while I was at Carleton. Um, and so my, my first uh, major political experience actually was uh, coordinating with the local Northfield Democratic Party to help get out the vote for John Kerry, I remember. Oh. And I remember driving down, uh, down to Iowa with a group of people who would become uh, some of my new closest friends uh, down to Iowa for a, a John Kerry rally. Um, and actually, I think one of the folks in that room ended up speaking at my wedding when Lee and I got married. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I don't know. I have a lot nice. of really fond memories of being at Carleton. And I haven't actually been back. I, I missed my five and ten year reunion. I haven't been oh. back. I'm, I'm dying to get out there. Well, come um, visit so, us. We'll host yeah. you. We'd love I to have lo- you here. I would love to come out, and I don't know if it'll work this cycle, but I certainly want to come out to Minnesota and visit with some of the groups out there. So hopefully we can make that work in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, that would be fantastic. So, well, we really appreciate you taking all this time to talk to us. It's been fabulous. Uh, Again, I just want to encourage our listeners, if they would like to get involved, want to know when our door knocking is, any of our events, what we're up to, please go to our website, which is indivisiblemn03.org, or you can find us on Facebook, which is just facebook.com slash indivisiblemn03. 03.org. And of course, you can always email us, which is resist at indivisiblemno3.org. Sort of repetitive there. So it makes it easy for everyone to remember how to find us. So thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you, Ezra. Thanks, Ezra. It's been great talking to you. Looking forward to meeting in person soon. Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So go tell your neighbors and even the strangers, there's so much to share.